Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It is going fantastic today, Tim. As a matter of fact, I'm feeling a little bit peckish. <laughs> that's one thing that's going on in my world. I have two questions for you, first of all. One, do you know why it's called a Meyer lemon? And two, how are you? <laughs> I am doing great. And no, not off the top of my head, but I'm guessing our guest in today's episode will know why a Meyer lemon is called that. He is a, uh, a fantastic author. He's written a couple books. He's working on a new one. His name is Daniel Stone, and this is his second time on the show. Really, I think it's fair to say he's one of our favorite guests. He writes about such interesting things, and the first interview with Daniel Stone, we spoke about his book, Sinkable, which is about all the people obsessed with the shipwreck of the Titanic, which I found actually was my favorite book of 2022. And now he's back to speak about his other book, The Food Explorer. I feel like Daniel Stone is our personal authentic <laughs> when it comes to what we are interested in outside of true crime you really love sinkable and you recommended it to me i read it it's awesome but that's not something i would have gravitated towards because shipwrecks just aren't in my wheelhouse of interest but the book the food explorer which daniel wrote in 2018 before sinkable was actually the best nonfiction book that i read in 2022 we'll be talking about that along with a little bit of cannibalism because the food explorer gets into how in the fiji culture they regard cannibalism as not a crime, but more like a, a, a cultural thing. It's like he's our personal writer. He's going to write about the uh, history of uh, True Crime Podcast next, I bet. If anyone is to write a book about that, I would feel very comfortable having that topic being the hands of Daniel Stone. Well, you can get his books at danielstonebooks.com, and obviously they're available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com and elsewhere. But yeah, definitely check them out. The audiobook versions are great too, and they're read by him. He is a fantastic narrator. So I'm not going to give any spoilers. I set it up with where the Meyer Lemons name came from. I'm not going to tell anybody in this intro right now. You're going to have to listen to the interview. He gets into the story of David Fairchild, who basically created the cuisine that we all eat today in America. I think everyone's going to enjoy it, but people might enjoy it a little bit more without the ads. And where can someone go to get that, Tim? Listeners can subscribe to Crawl Space Premium now on Apple Podcasts right there in their app. You'll get ad-free episodes, weekly bonus show, and early releases. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up there for the same product. And David Fairchild, he was around in the late 19th century, and they didn't have much social media back then. But had they, where would he, along with all of his cohorts, find us on social media? Well, you can find us on social media at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick here for commercial, and we'll be right back with Daniel Stone. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome back to the podcast, author Daniel Stone. How are you today? Great. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. And we previously had you on to speak about your great book, Sinkable, which Tim introduced to me. And it is riveting. And it was a great conversation to talk about the Titanic. You have another book out that we're going to focus on some elements of today. But for those out there who unfortunately maybe didn't hear that conversation, I encourage them to go back and check that out. But could you let people know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a writer on adventure and exploration and history. I've spent most of my career with National Geographic, circling the world, writing for the magazine on issues of culture and travel and 
history. Uh, and now I write books on many of those same themes. And your narration is top notch, both on Sinkable and the Food Explorer. Naturally, I feel like I have to ask you, when's your podcast coming out? You know, people have suggested I create one. I try to focus my time on writing books, but I will say I used to work for Newsweek 20 years ago. And part of being like a young person working there was they required we all get media training. You're familiar with this and how you have to enunciate and not too many us and how to answer a question you have no idea the answer to, but you have to answer on live television or radio anyway. So that helped like 20 years ago. Probably should take a couple of courses on how to answer a question that you have no idea the answer to on this end anyway. (laughs) Once you know the secrets of it, you'll see it on TV news all the time when they ask a question and someone's like, well, that's a really great question, but what we really should be asking is, and then you turn left, yeah. It's the real Tom Brady, or just law enforcement in general. That's what we get a lot from them. Yes. A very political way, I guess, to answer a question, or to evade a question. Yeah. No one's better at it than politicians. Well, I didn't know we are going to talk about this right off the bat. Now my brain's all reeling. I'm going to be overanalyzing my answers. But the real question here is, what inspired you to want to write about this food explorer? Well, this is my first book. It came out a couple years ago. It's called The Food Explorer, and it's about a food spy for the U.S. government. It's a true story of a man who circled the world on assignment for the U.S. government right at the turn of the 20th century, about 1890 to 1910. And when we think of food today, most of us can think of some native things to America, things like apples, oranges, bananas, very common foods. Almost none of the things we eat, including those three I just mentioned, are actually from America. They all originated somewhere else on the planet, and they all were brought here as immigrants about 100 years ago and embedded in our culture, in our agriculture, and in our food culture. So this is the story of the one man who did most of the bringing. His name's David Fairchild. Fascinating guy. I had learned about him in my job at National Geographic. I read kind of a footnote literally about him. I read his Wikipedia page and I thought, this guy is fascinating. This guy did all of the crazy adventure stuff that we still think of today as kind of crazy. And he did it 100 years ago. And so I thought, if no one's told his story, I want to tell his story. It is a really cool story to tell. And I think the last time you came on, I said that what really interests me about these topics is that I never knew I would be interested in them until someone like you writes a book about them. It is remarkable. This individual single-handedly created the agricultural program basically, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think in history of people who make such dramatic contributions that they transform the daily lives of all of us a hundred years in the future, right? That's like a very high bar to clear for any of us in any of our work. So yeah, David Fairchild lived an extraordinary life and he traveled to more than 50 countries all by boat in a time that was very dangerous. You know, he came across people who were not welcoming to him, people who shot arrows at him. He caught diseases. He almost died a few times, and it was all in the service of finding novel crops, finding new varieties of grapes or mangoes, nectarines, peaches, soybeans, cotton, or cherries. I mean, it's a long list. And he introduced all of them back to the US where they were propagated in labs and then sent out to farmers and eventually became so embedded in American agriculture that now we have enormous industries of oranges in California or apples in Washington that we just think of as having been here the whole time. Very interesting 
interesting stuff. Now, I really enjoyed the part about the cannibalism in Fiji. As a crime guy, this is one of the parts that I was like, oh, wow, this is really fascinating. Tell us a little bit about this, how David Fairchild met the Fijians. As I mentioned, Fairchild goes to a lot of countries. He takes boats all over the world. This is in the 1890s, probably 1895 is when he gets to Fiji. And Fiji, as it is still today, really small island, South Pacific, native culture that has lived only on Fiji for hundreds of years. And he comes across the idea of cannibalism, right? Fiji was known for a long time as the cannibal islands, this small group of islands where people for a long time literally were cannibals. They ate each other, not in huge quantity, but they did. And this was a kind of novelty to him as it would be for us today if we were to arrive somewhere like this. And so he does kind of a natural history kind of study of this. And he learns that cannibalism is actually really common in the 16th, 17th, and part of the 18th centuries in a lot of these islands in the South Pacific, in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea and Fiji and other parts of Polynesia. The question, why? Why all these islands? Well, when you have a population that's living on an island, there's limited resources and there's a lot of competition for those resources and especially for partners. So cannibalism really was in those days a way for the older men in a tribe to moderate the number and the influence of the younger men who were competing for the same number of resources, which really means women in that case. So it was embedded in the culture that, you know, most people would not last past their 30th birthday because they would be too threatening to the older men who had survived. Oh my God. Sounds very similar to the competition here in the podcasting business. So now that you have some background knowledge on cannibalism, you know, getting into podcasting, how to, I guess, deal with that. Right. Yeah. How do you not become a victim, I guess, of that back then? Well, there were class systems. I mean, if you were a rich person or came from a wealthy family, you were in a higher social class that generally helped. Interestingly, the higher the social class you were, the higher the priority you got to eat the meat of people who were killed. So there were like really choice parts of the body that were like prized morsels, like caviar, you know? The parts I remember reading were the thumb and the part of your skin between your thumb and the rest of your hand was like the best meat on the body. The worst part was like on the arms or on the neck, parts that like got a lot of action. And so there was really tough meat. And so that would usually be shared with people in the tribe who were much poorer or lower class. Right. You had some info about how they were cooked. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I found that interesting. Yeah, there was all sorts of seasonings and sorts of cooking methods, recipes that people would use to basically make these dishes. And this wasn't like the Donner Party or eras of cannibalism where people were drawn to desperation or extreme. This was a form of culinary innovation, of finding new ways to cook human flesh. Sometimes there was a lot of it if people were killed for a ceremonial or celebratory purpose. And so when we think of today, like our chili cook-offs or our barbecue competitions, it was maybe not quite as festive as that, but still a certain embedded amount of culture in what everyone's doing together. But are there willing participants? I mean, this is just murder at the end of the day, right? It is. And there are stories of white men who go visit Fiji in this era in the 1870s and the 1880s, and they return with these tales of how naked and strange it is to see murder happening in such a celebratory way. I mean, there were ways that, you know, if the Fijians built a new canoe or they wanted to christen a new house, they would often sacrifice a person for every plank of the canoe. And then they'd sacrifice more people to roll the canoe on down to the water. So this was a lot of people. This was 
also a rite of passage for a man to be given his coronation or to grow into manhood. He would often have to commit a homicide. And there were elaborate ways that they would kill people. I mean, sometimes they'd have this, they called it a braining stone, where two men would take a third man in the middle, grab him by the arms, and they'd run at this stone at full speed and just slam his head into this stone. And, you know, it usually took one, maybe two slams before he died, but this was a ritual rite of passage. This did not happen to everybody, but this happened frequently enough that it was part of what they did. It became cultural practice and lore for hundreds of years. I have to back up just a bit and clarify. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. They sacrificed more people to roll the canoe down to the river? You know, the cultural and natural history of this whole era is very thin because written language was not very common and the records we have are even more sparse. But most of these details come from an American explorer who's not David Fairchild, who visits in, I think, 1878 and sends back a dispatch to the Sacramento Union Tribune declaring all these details. So it's possible some of them are embellished, but also much of this is so shocking at a base level that embellishment was not really required. So yeah, he talked about a body for every plank of the canoe and more to roll it down to the water. So they physically would roll the canoe over people to get it down to the water? Over dead people, yes. Over dead people. It's really wild. And also, you know, we're a bunch of Westerners who see this as kind of horrific. They did not in those days. And it wasn't really until British colonists showed up that they start seeing this and introducing the idea of moral outrage, of crime, of sin, of repentance. Before that, it didn't quite exist. Wow. And I have the quote here from your book that was from the Sacramento Daily Union. Murder is regarded as a gentlemanly accomplishment by them, and no young man is fitted to take his place in society until he has committed at least one homicide. And so that's reasonably true. I kind of thought that was for headlines or something. No, that's true. And notice that he uses the word homicide instead of murder. I mean, today, all of us would use the word murder. You intend to do it, you do it, it's murder. Uh, Homicide kind of carries a lighter tone that, well, a person died and you might have had a part in it. You know, maybe it was an accident, maybe it was not. But in today's metrics, we would call it murder. And you bring up an interesting point about the moral outrage that took place from people in the West and wanting to apply that to what they're doing. Is this really something that we can even say was done by people who were psychotic? I don't think so, right? Because if this is something that is in their history and their tradition, they're not doing it out of malice, right? No. I mean, it starts as a form of adapting to fewer natural resources and keeping an island population stable. But think about, like, I'm sure we've all seen Lord of the Flies, that famous book and movie. Bunch of kids get dropped on an island and very quickly they kind of turn crazy, right? And they all turn on each other. And you can imagine that if you would let that keep going and see what happens to the kids in a few months, a few years, there'd probably be an era of violence and then there'd be an era of moderation where they kind of figure out their social roles and their hierarchy, who's allowed to live, who's allowed to live where, who's more senior to whom else. And that's when cannibalism really becomes an issue. People are killed for indiscriminate purposes and on an island where there's not much protein to go around to begin with, making use of those bodies just embeds itself. I wouldn't say it happened all at once, but that's how an island finds its moderation in a small space. It's wild. So was David Fairchild at risk of being uh, cannibalized? No. When he gets there, he's again in the 1890s. This is at the very end of this era of cannibalism. And it's the end because white colonists had started arriving about 20 to 30 years prior and introducing these ideas of what the hell are you people doing? This is horrific. This is horrible. You shouldn't do this. It didn't 
change overnight, but it did change slowly. But even more so when Fairchild gets there, you know, think that how strange it must be in Fiji to see a white man, right? And a white man who looked like some of those rich colonists who had arrived before, that he was a higher social status. So not only was he not to be messed with, but also no one knew what his flesh was like. He could have been an entirely different species from people who had never seen a white person before. So they're not willing to attempt eating something very new that came from somewhere very far that could be carrying diseases or worse that they're not familiar with. It's a really great and obvious point that you bring up. I mean, just with us, with food that we see that we've never seen before, let's say you've never seen an oyster before. Like most people's first reaction isn't to think that that looks delicious. I'm going to slurp it up. So when a white man enters into their world, yeah, they're probably thinking like, no, we'll just leave that person to be that person. Yeah. And think of the difference of like what we eat and what we think is normal. So we eat like cows and pigs and chickens all the time. But if we didn't have access to all those and you're really hungry and a horse shows up, your first thought would not be, oh my God, I'm totally going to eat that horse. You'd probably think like, I would think like, I can't eat a horse. Who eats horses, right? It's just one of those animals for cultural reasons. We don't eat it. Other cultures do eat it, but it's just too foreign, at least at first, unless you're really, really hungry that you wouldn't eat a horse. I think now's a good time to bring up my hypothetical. I haven't run this by you before, right? The airplane? No. I've been running this by our guests when it's been appropriate and we're talking about cannibalism, so I can't find a more appropriate time to bring it up. Is it weird to you (laughs) that when I board a plane and I sit down, one of my first, I'll just say my first thought is, if this plane crashes and I survive, who am I eating first? Is that weird to you? That's pretty weird. Yeah. That's been the overall consensus so far with the guests. No one's told me it's normal yet. And like, do you find someone? Do you say like that guy sitting in 22B, he's who I'm going for? Yeah. It's usually a beefier uh, male. You have to find a big stone to run him into, assuming you survive the crash. Those are details that we can suss out. Hope he doesn't run you into the stone. Yeah. It's probably not going to be an easy task for me to overcome. You know, maybe we could team up and find somebody else. My thought doesn't go much beyond like, okay, that would be my option. That's the guy. Yeah. And only on an airplane, like not when you get on a boat or uh, (laughs) on a bus or something. Sometimes on Zoom calls. Sometimes on Zoom calls, sometimes in interviews. You mentioned the space in between your thumb and your index (laughs) finger, and it looks tasty right now, so I might have to go on mute and get out of this for a little bit. (laughs) I guess if you think about it, the claw of the lobster. I mean, in my opinion, you know, one of the best parts of the lobster, so maybe that's comparable. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that part that gets like a lot of action, but it's really tender also, and there's not much of it, so it's like not that much to go around. Maybe that's what made it valuable. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So listening to the book and you come across the cannibal section where you're talking about it, I pictured you researching this book in a sort of mindset that was nice and calm and you're reading about these adventures that Fairchild goes on and you learn about things like the cherry blossom trees that came over and you're enjoying yourself and then you come to this cannibal part. When we reached out to see if you wanted to do this interview, you seemed very excited. You were like, no one's ever talked to me about the cannibal part. I'd love to. What was your mindset as you started uncovering these facts about the people of Fiji? I was like... Like, holy moly, I cannot believe this existed in the world and that Fairchild had interaction with this. And as you could see in the book, I devoted almost like two pages to discussing cannibalism because I was so fascinated by these details. They have really nothing to do with botanical or agricultural history of America, but they're such like shoulder shaking details of a time in history and a Fairchild's travels. So I included them and I hope people enjoyed them. But yeah, I've been talking about this book for past three or four years and no one's ever brought them up. So I was thrilled 
thrilled when someone said, your book's fine and the book is interesting, but these details are even better. I'm thrilled you did. I'm thrilled you read it closely and invited me. I blame the listeners, honestly, of this show because we know what they want and they want to hear about people eating people. I mean, it's on you, listeners. Yeah, this could be it. This could be the subject that really lights on fire. It is so weird, though. I mean, we can all admit it, it's it really like is. so bizarre and strange to think that this happened not that long ago, like among our own species in an area of the world that's not even that far from here. It's bizarre to like come across such cultural details. I just can't get past how there's so many victims of this. There's just like a gang of people ready to grab people and kill them for meat at any point? Yeah, there were detailed ways it was done, and it was methodical. It wasn't just kind of being taken in the middle of the night. But another part of this is, you know, you got to think about living on an island with few natural resources. No ships are coming in. No trucks are coming to deliver anything. And the value of life is just lower in that case, right? Like in the past, when so many people would die before the age of 40, you know, they'd catch diseases or they'd starve, and it was just just more common in those days. And that reduced the value of life, where if you had like eight or 10 kids, you would just assume that a couple of them wouldn't make it. And so the high value of life that we consider today that, you know, it would be horrific and criminal to kill, let alone eat a person. In those days, it was still kind of not ideal, especially for the person, but they didn't really have great expectations of their life to begin with, especially if you were a poor islander, like on Fiji, the opportunities you had to get to 30, 40, 50 years old are pretty slim beyond that almost non-existent so the idea of dying when you're 28 or 30 you know with your head being slammed into a stone is again not ideal but it's also not completely counter to what you hope and expect for the rest of your life was there ever any examples of somebody who was about to what's the term for that the braining stone braining stone i mean did they go to the person and say it's your turn now to be stone brained that i don't know i don't know how it was determined or how much warning the person got I mean, imagine if someone told you a week or two in advance this was going to happen to you and you had to sit with that for that long. I'd be gone. Yeah. I'd be gone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I assume there was a formal process. I mean, there was a king of Fiji in these days that presumably his decree had the effect of law. So I don't know how it was decided who, but again, it was largely classist and largely by age of men. So men were killed most often. What about children? Did you mention children in the book? Yeah, children were sometimes, and there's a part of that that Sacramento reporter's report that involves babies and how, you know, with the braining stone, men were dragged into it two or three times. But if it was a baby, of course, it only took one time before their head just like broke open. So again, horrifying details. We don't have a huge written record. So we don't know, was he exaggerating? How often did this happen? Why would you kill a baby in this horrific way, let alone at all? Many of those details are lost to history. It's hard to imagine why he would be exaggerating or elaborating on that being done to a baby unless he wanted to deliberately drive a wedge in between the two cultures so that the Western culture could really demonize that culture. Yeah, and I think that happened a lot in those days. It still happens. In our days, we think of people on the other side of the world and how we invent things or exaggerate things that they do to make them seem exotic or horrific or whatnot. I don't know. The idea of exaggerating babies being killed makes them sound like unrefined island people, maybe even a different species from 
from a Westerner. But I imagine it did happen at least a few times for him to even have the idea of it. Oh, that's wild. One bigger question about the book. Fairchild was sent on these secret missions. Why were they secret? And how secret were they? Well, they were secret at first, certainly in the 1890s, where he's going basically on assignment for the USDA. He's kind of a covert operative to find and acquire botanical material. Botanical materials all over the world, but when it comes to crops of economic value, he's going to places and finding established industries of things like lemons or grapes or hops for brewing beer. And he's trying to acquire them from people who grow them really well, and in some cases have cornered the national and global market for those crops. And so to get that material is effectively like stealing, or if they allow it, it's competitive, right? Setting up a rival industry in the US that could compete with the originator. So at the beginning, he's a covert operative. He's going, he's trying to do this stuff in secret without anybody knowing so that he doesn't ruffle feathers or get arrested. But as he gets older in his like late 20s and 30s and 40s, and he's doing this work, he becomes more of a diplomat. And he thinks that I can have more success if I befriend these people, if I flatter them, if I go to their country and say, wow, Baghdad farmer, you grow the best dates in the world. Dates are this great, amazing fruit. I love them. I want to introduce them to Southern California that has a similar climate. You have no worry about us competing with you. Can you please teach me how to grow this crop that you're so good at? And can you give me some samples so I can get started? And if you start with a pitch like that, people are generally willing to help. People want to feel valued and flattered. And so he got really good at that. And it wasn't a form of deception. He wasn't trying to trick them into thinking he was friendly. He really was friendly and it really did work. And he'd get the dates to Southern California or he'd get the mangoes to Florida or whatever they were. And he'd keep in touch with the farmers. He'd send them letters. In some cases, he'd send them photos and show them that they had influenced a rising country on the other side of the world. They had helped start an economic industry, you know, in a different country. And that was usually, again, flattering for those farmers to feel like they had an impact somewhere else. On a human to human level, was there any real danger for him? Yeah, there was. He went to parts of islands right off Indonesia and Malaysia, people who had never seen a white man before. They shot arrows at him. They were very skeptical of who he was and risked his safety. He was at one point, uh, I believe, off the coast of India and he caught typhoid, which was very common in those days. This is the late 1890s. And he almost died in a hotel and basically came back to life. So traveling was very dangerous in those days, you'd get on a ship. Sometimes the ship would crash. Sometimes it wouldn't make it. You didn't know who else was on the ship with you, if they had guns or knives. And you'd show up in places where people maybe didn't want you to be there. And so he did this work for about 15 years and came very close to death a few times, but always outran it. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And he wasn't acting in this alone. He actually was the recipient of a very generous individual whose name I always over-enunciate, so I apologize. And I don't know why when his first name is Thomas, he didn't just go by Thomas. Uh, Barbour. I can't just say Barber. Barber Lathrop. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Barber Lathrop is one of these great big characters from the late 19th century. And basically, David Fairchild meets Barbara Lathrop on a boat going from New York to Naples, Italy, in 
1894. They're both aboard this boat and Fairchild meets Barbara Lathrop. And Barbara Lathrop is this world traveling playboy bachelor, right? A man who is extremely wealthy, who really has no family, not many friends. And he just uses his money to circle the world and stay in these grand hotels and take these grand tours of every country. And so he meets Fairchild, who has this scientific vision of getting fruits and vegetables and sending them back to America. And Barbara Lathrop says, I want to invest in you. I think you're going places. I want to invest $1,000 in your travel, which in those days was worth maybe what twenty five dollars to $30,000 is today. So not a small amount of money. I want to invest in you because I think you're going to do important work. And so the two of them end up kind of partnering up and teaming up and traveling together. Barbara Lathrop provides the means, the money, and Fairchild provides the scientific know-how, the expertise. And they travel for about 10 years until Fairchild gets married because they each were useful to each other. So Fairchild was good at this work. He was very smart and very kind, but he also got really lucky. Who among us wouldn't love to meet someone who offered us 25 Gs to do our life's work and do it really well and fund it so that we can do it? Fairchild got lucky with that meeting and without Barbara Lathrop, it's hard to imagine he would have been so successful. I really loved how you described their relationship because it was almost like Lathrop was sort of indifferent to the mission that Fairchild was embarking upon, but saw that there was importance there. But I do like that he even came around and he did get irritated when he wasn't getting the credit he thought he should be getting for making it all happen in the first place. Yeah. I mean, he gave Fairchild that $1,000 and then funded more of their travels for years. And Fairchild was sending back all sorts of stuff to the US and it was creating these novel industries. And it was all funded by this private citizen. You know, it was a government worker being funded by a private citizen to the point where Barbara Lathrop starts to get annoyed that he's saying, first of all, I pay my taxes and I'm also funding this private thing for the government and no one's even acknowledging me. Rich people generally have larger egos. They want to be acknowledged and thanked. And Barbara Lathrop was like, it won't take much, but you need to publicly thank me or I'm going to cut off this income stream. And so the USDA ends up putting his name in one of their annual agricultural reports that billions of people read. But that was enough for him to feel like he was in the historical record. And there's another character in the story that you detail out, Frank Meyer, who literally like drove himself to death doing this, right? Yeah. Fairchild hires Frank Meyer later in Fairchild's life when he's kind of too old and he had gotten married, so he can't continue his globetrotting himself. So he hires Frank Meyer, who's a young Dutch immigrant. And Frank Meyer's job is literally to walk across China, walk across one of the oldest countries, the oldest civilization on earth that had been farming for 4,000 years and find out what you can. Pick up whatever you can, get some growing tips, advice, whatever you can, and bring them back. And Frank Meyer has these harrowing adventures, even more harrowing than Fairchild. I mean, he is regularly beaten and threatened. He is threatened by wild animals at one point. He sleeps in many different inns that are extremely dingy, full of bed bugs. He writes about it very detailed in his diaries. But he has a lot of success. He picks up soybeans and pears and wild oats, thousands of different crops, many of them that made it big in U.S. markets. And Frank Meyer's mostly forgotten. He's not kind of a big name in agriculture, but he is known for one thing. On one of his last expeditions in a family's doorway, he sees a fruit growing on a small tree and it's yellow. He tastes 
tastes it. And it seems to be citrus that is a mix between a lemon and an orange, sweeter than a lemon, more tart than an orange. It turns out to be a natural hybrid of the two that he imports and starts to be grown in California. And all these years later, we know this fruit as the Meyer lemon named after Frank Meyer. And it's the favorite lemon now of the top tier celebrity chefs, you know, Martha Stewart, Alice Waters, Alton Brown, they all love the Meyer lemon because it's a natural hybrid. His character and personality, it's just darkly comical to me that that's what he's known for. Because the way you describe him, like growing his hair out and getting a beard and like making it look like he's this burly individual so no one will attack him. And then this delicate, beautifully flavored piece of fruit has his name on it. That's used in like the finest French lemon tarts. Yeah, that's like the one thing that's him. I think he would be surprised at that. But also, I think he'd be satisfied that he gets credit at least for one thing. Yeah, for sure. Tell us why beer drinkers owe Mr. Fairchild a bit of gratitude. Yeah, so in, I think, 1897, Fairchild goes to Bavaria. This is part of what is now southern Germany, which at the time was one of the top beer-producing regions of the world. They thought they produced the best beer on earth. They still think that. And so Fairchild goes, you know, this is the era of Budweiser and Coors and Miller and these big beer brands in the U.S. that don't really have great beer. They don't have great ingredients. And so Fairchild is tasked with going to get hops from the Bavarians. And the Bavarians knew that they had great hops. They actually hired young men to guard the fields at night from people like Fairchild. But again, Fairchild goes as this friendly diplomat. He tries to befriend them. He tries to flatter them. At one point, he even takes a portrait of one of the growers, which is an extremely rare pleasure in these days. And one of the farmers says, okay, don't tell the others, but I will give you some hops. Go to the next town over and I will send you a shipment. And when you get it, you got to leave and don't come back. And you didn't get it from me. Fairchild's efforts toward diplomacy ended up working. Many of those hops were planted in fields in the Midwest in the early 20th century. Many of them were actually plowed up again during Prohibition when it was a poor use of land to grow hops and brew beer. But enough of them lasted, enough of them grew and survived so that after World War II, when German fields were mostly completely destroyed by bombs, the U.S. gifted a portion of those Bavarian hops back to Germany uh, as a sign of post-war reconciliation. So about a 50-year history of hops with Fairchild in Germany. If Fairchild's adventures in bringing hops back to the U.S. helped Budweiser, Coors, and Miller, I can't imagine what it tasted like before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not great. I think the big beer of like the 1890s was Pabst Blue Ribbon, PBR. And I think their recipe has stayed the exact same. But as you know, better ingredients make better beer. So those beers are the average, common, most adored American brands. I just have one final question, and it's it's not a right or wrong question, but you'll probably be a little bit judged based on your answer. Between Tim and myself, you're on a plane, the plane crashes, <laughs> you need to eat one of us. Who's, uh, who's being I think consumed? Tim and I would be eating you, Lance. Oh! <laughs> because now that I know that if we I'm don't, honored. you're going to be eating one of us. So yeah, this is self-defense at this point. I was wrong. I said that there was no right or wrong answer, but yeah, that was the right answer. Definitely the right answer. <laughs> 
Well, Daniel Stone, thank you so much for joining us here today. What is your next book about it and when can we read yeah, it? Yeah, my next book I'm about half done with now. It's called The Doctor and the Devil, tentative title. And it's the story of Alice Hamilton and Thomas Midgley, two Americans who fought over pollution and environmental history right during the explosion of car culture in the early 1920s. They're both great characters. It's a really cool story and I'm knee deep in research as we speak. Amazing. Yet another topic that never would have occurred to me that would be super interesting and you've done it again. I can't. I would love to come on again when it's out. It'll be out hopefully uh, later next year. Great. Definitely. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here today. Thank you guys. Appreciate you both. (laughs) 